Good evening. Hi, I'm Barbara Sneed, and I am the co, the interim co-college librarian here at Goucher College. And as such, uh, I would like to welcome all of you, members of the Goucher Friends of the Library, Goucher students, faculty members, community members. Any Balt? Are there any Baltimore bibliophiles here? <laughs> okay, very welcome to you as well. And uh, as you know, this is our spring event that is sponsored by the generosity of the Friends of the Library. We really appreciate your support. And we do a lot of other things besides sponsor programs. We sponsor various resources that we purchase and uh, prizes for students who are doing uh, different projects. So anyway, I won't go into that. But uh, we're very happy that you braved this drizzly uh, Thursday afternoon and made it here. Uh, we are also very pleased uh, to have one of our own giving our program this spring. But I, I'm going to turn the program over first to our curator of special collections and archives, Tara Olivero. Uh, I've, I've known her since she worked here because I've been here about 18 years and she's been here about half that time. So uh, without further ado, I'm going to ha uh, welcome to Tara. Got a lot of papers up here, Arnie. <laughs> Good evening. I'm very happy to introduce our speaker tonight, Arnold Sanders, Professor Emeritus of English, who will speak about this wonderful gift the library received, a 15th century manuscript prayer book called The Burner's Hours. This beautiful book is the first complete manuscript in our collection and it significantly enhances the scope of our permanent collection and the caliber of the specimens we have in the special collections and archives to make available for student research. A scholar of medieval literature and early print books, Professor Sanders taught at the college for over 28 years. He specialized in English medieval literature, critical theory, and composition, and has published on Chaucer, Mallory, Spencer, and early modern print books. Though he retired in 2015, Arnie, as many of us know him, continues to teach his innovative book history course, Archaeology of Text. Recently, Arnie spent significant time working with us in the special collections, researching bibliographic data on some of our oldest and most valuable books in the collection, in order to make them more accessible to students and researchers. He always kept things interesting, um, but those are stories for another, another day. Um, Arnie and his wife, Laura Provan, who is, is here tonight, are longtime, friend, longtime friends and supporters of the library and special collections. They are also the donors of this special gift that we are here tonight to celebrate. Laura is a retired pharmacy executive who also serves as a docent at the Walters Museum in Baltimore with a special interest in medieval manuscripts. It could not be more fitting that this book has come from Laura and Arnie who are sharing their love of books and dedication to the study of books with present and future students. This gift was made in honor of their parents as well as Nancy Magnuson, college librarian Librarian Emerita, who is here tonight. Laura and Arnie, thank you for this wonderful gift. 
You're probably thinking that it's unfortunate for Arnie to have to work on a night that is meant to celebrate his generosity. And it's not that he does not deserve a nice, relaxing evening. It is just that he is the absolute most appropriate person to introduce the Burners Hours and how it will have a special role in our rare books collection. You will also be able to see his gift for teaching and sharing his passion for exploring and understanding the world through the study of books. Arnie has already made new discoveries about the Burners Hours that you will learn about, and he is working with several students who are conducting independent studies with the manuscript this semester. Thank you for joining us tonight, and again, it is my pleasure to introduce Arnie Sanders, Professor Emeritus of English and the Burners Hours. Um, thank you, Tara, and the friends of the library for making this uh, event possible. Am I coming through? Okay. Um, I also need to thank the rest of the, what we'd have to call a team of people at the library um, that have made, uh, have made it possible for us to learn so much about the manuscript. As you'll know by the end of the talk, it's an extremely complex object. Uh, it's like a little city of information in a very small space. And people from, with all sorts of different specializations uh, have worked together and each have added their little piece to it. Um, Melissa Straw, Director of Conservation and Preservation, and Abigail Quant and, and Lindley Herbert of the Walters Art Museum helped us understand its physical composition. Uh, we're still working on that, that bit, and you'll, you'll see more about that. Kristen Welsenbach, the Digital Initiatives Librarian, put a version of this pre presentation into the library's digital um, archives and also helped me solve innumerable weird software problems. Um, they all they always happen when I touch the mouse. I don't know. <laughs> um, Katrina Jackson, cataloging and metadata librarian, uh, created the manuscript's first publicly accessible record on WorldCat. So it's is it searchable for now or yes? So it can be found now on WorldCat with a fairly complete description of what's in it and who's associated with it. Uh, Thomason LeMay and Tom Minima, the interlibrary loan and circulation librarians, handled innumerable requests for obscure materials from all over the place. Um, monstrous art book from Kansas State, um, and, and did so with uh, amazing tolerance for my tendency to return things late. Um, and Rebecca Silber, who's here today, um, uh, Goucher Class of 2019, who's um, researching the pigment, uh, pigments used in the miniatures in the manuscript. Um, some basic research that's laying the groundwork for much that is to come as we learn um, more about the actual artists who made this. And finally, Nancy Magnuson, college librarian emerita and extraordinary internet sleuth, who just last week found the manuscript's first home in England, which we had thought was an entirely different and much grander place. I'll, you'll see a picture of it. Uh, but it's it's got its own interests, and also possibly the last will and testament of the first recorded owner. Um, we could not have learned so much without all of you. Thank you very much. <clears throat> um, Jim, or could somebody back there hit the dim the lights as much as possible? This is this is the beginning of a little thought experiment. I'd like you to um, briefly imagine yourselves in the late 1400s. 
It's dawn. You're just waking up. And as you brush the sleep from your eyes, you're reaching to, this, to the bedside, not for your iPhone, of course, but for your prayer book, which is going to perform the same functions for you in the late 1400s that your iPhone performs for contemporary people, except it'll leave you a good deal more calmer. Um, it will locate you in time and space. It'll tell you what you need to pay attention to today. Especially, it'll help you keep in touch with your ancestors and your children and their souls if they are not no longer alive. And it will help prepare you for the dangers of the day and give you support and aid. That's the sort of thing that a book of hours is doing for people before so many of the things we take for granted. For instance, no anesthesia except alcohol and opium, both of which can as easily kill the patient as, as enable them to get to the operation. No antiseptics, no antibiotics. Uh, no real knowledge of anatomy, except in very rare cases. So what we've got to what we've got to deal with when we deal with medicine is something that books of hours would have been used for. There's no police force, so when you want protection from injury, um, you invoke the aid of the powers that actually operate in your world. Am I close enough? We're recording this. I know. Okay, we can cut that part, right? <laughs> so a book of hours is doing things for you that many of the other apparatus that, that we currently take for granted in the 21st century um, is doing more or less well for us now. But for a little bit of time, try to think of, in terms of life in the late 1400s. Hello. I'm going for the next slide and it's not happening. <laughs> I'll stick with you. First, you need to know what are the hours. These are hours at which prayer is ordinarily expected of uh, observant Christians in this period. And the hours are matins about midnight. If you were not awake, there were chantry priests and monks praying for you. Uh, that was one of the services the church provided. But if you're like some of us and you wake up with worries on your mind, there was something better to do than reach for diazepam. Um, you could pray and, re and receive immediate psychological and one would say spiritual comfort. Lauds at 3 a.m. Uh, continues those early morning prayers. Some, for some of us, the worst hours, if, especially if you go to bed just the least bit early, then you wake up early, of course, and then at 3, you need something to do with that hamster in your head. And prayer takes the place of all of the pharmacopoeia that we have at our disposal, plus a good deal of talk therapy. Prime is the time that most of us know, dawn, when you wake up, and if you're in the 1400s, you're ready to go to work, because you learn from Genesis that Adam was told that you'll eat your bread in the sweat of your brow. Everybody went to work, and before they went to work, they had to pray, because you had to get yourself oriented to your task and oriented to your life. And before that, you needed to take care of the spiritual state of yourself and your loved ones. Terrace, around 9 is in the church calendar because it's the third hour of the morning, the hour in which Jesus was con condemned. But it's also a time to pause in the, in the middle of the morning and reorient yourself. The noon prayer at Sext is a time we ordinarily are taking off to get our lunch or something like that. But to consider prayer as something you would do that would nourish you, that would, again, sort of recenter your head, get you get you oriented toward your, your task and your, and your time on earth. 
so that you didn't just sort of plow through from breakfast to dinner, uh, working, working, working. Uh, but you actually take time out to consider who you are and what you're doing. There's a mid-afternoon break at Nuns. That was the hour of, um, of Jesus' death. Sext was the hours of the crucifixion. And then the evening prayer at Vespers. Again, 6 p.m., more or less. Again, if you're not dealing with an actual digital clock, you're waiting for the sun to go down. And then Vesper, the Vespers bell, bell would ring. And you'd have another set of prayers. And then the last prayers of the day, Compline, around 9 p.m. So as you can see, as the Walters Art Museum once put it in an exhibition of Books of Hours, time is sanctified. The entire day is punctuated by prayer and attention to spiritual matters. Um, the, the amount of time that retired people like me spend watching the S&P 500, someone like the owners of the Burners Hours would have spent looking into their souls and thinking about the spiritual well-being of the people they loved. So you would reach for the Book of Hours, and this is the way Blackwell's Rare Books described it originally. Book of Hours, Use of Serum, that's Salisbury Cathedral, in Latin, illuminated, manuscript on parchment, Bruges, now Belgium, then, the, then in the Duchy of Burgundy, Guillaume de Verlent Atelier. It is a workshop in some sense. That alone tells us that it's unusual, because Bruges is in Europe, and the use of serum is England. So why, if you're in Bruges, do you make a book of hours that has saints that the English pray to, specifically in their calendar? And why do you have the Office of the Dead, the way Salisbury Cathedral celebrates it, and not the Bishop of Paris or the Bishop of Rouen? Why do you make a book like that, in effect, on spec for English buyers in Bruges? There's a quick an answer I hope you'll keep in mind. Bruges is the home of the English Merchant Company. They have their own colony there. Its governor for about 30 years was William Caxton, the first printer in England. And he learns to print in the 1470s from Collard Manson, and it's in Bruges that he prints the first book printed in English, the recall of the histories of Troy. So while this book is being made, printing is coming to English. And there, there's sort of two technologies crossing, medieval and the modern. And we might also say two ways of, of doing business. The medieval, where things, books are made on spec, that is, are made on demand by, uh, by wealthy patrons who command what shall be in them, and who often are depicted in the books, as opposed to things made on spec, as we might say, for capitalist consumption. So the Vreeland Atelier is graduating, moving from Vreeland's old career as, a, a pa as, a, as an artist to aristocratic patrons, the Dukes of Burgundy, who had all the money in the world to spend on the most gorgeous, deluxe, very rare, very large books of hours, to making books of hours for ordinary, well, more or less ordinary folks who had the money to pay for slightly smaller, slightly more condensed works that were being made now by a team of people that Caxton organized. So instead of a larger object, which might have had a form factor like this, you have an object that, as you see, is roughly five by three and a half inches, if any of you have owned an iPhone, uh, iPhone 5, that's about the, the horizontal and vertical dimensions of an iPhone 5. Again, it's 237 leaves. Of those leaves, uh, some of them are blanks. Uh, some of them have music written in the, in the 18th century on them. Uh, let's say there's roughly 220 leaves or 440 pages 
of prayer. And it's not meant to be read from beginning to end, so don't worry, it's not going to be too long to not read. You're going to dip into it, just like you would if you were shopping at the CVS for cures. Um, you're going to go into the place in the manuscript that has the prayers that will do the work you need done. And you'll do some of them repeatedly, every day, sometimes every month, and sometimes at certain times of the year. So there's a manuscript that will be read, uh, dipped into, and dipped into it again, and in other places, perhaps not read at all. There are some places in this manuscript that look as pristine as when they were first made. And for our book study students, those are fabulous to have alongside the heavily used pages because we can compare them and mentally reconstruct the way the heavily used pages must have looked when first made. If nothing else, we can also see this is a second binding, probably 1700s. And you can see that since then it has been used a heck of a lot. And can you tell what's happened at the top and bottom of the spine? What would cause that damage? Don't even have books that have been damaged that way. Not anymore. Pam's making a, a gesture like this. <laughs> um, yes, when you're pulling a book off the shelf, the natural thing to do is to try to pull it off at the top or, off, or the bottom, depending on what's sticking out nearest you. And this has been pulled and pulled until the, the top and bottom of the spine are coming away. But from the book study's point of view, this is fabulous. Because now we don't have to dissect the book. It's already coming apart. But we can see, we can see these gatherings. Each one of these is about eight leaves um, and, uh, and folded and sewn. These are the bands, four of them, that are holding the whole thing together. And a little top band there. And that whole thing is what has held the manuscript together and prevented it from, from disintegrating. It's been given a new binding roughly in the 1700s. Um, it's stamped with the instruments of the passion. This is actually a double stamp. You can see this is repeated. So this is not an expert binding job. But this side is a little easier to see. So there's a cross in the center surmounted by the crown of thorns, a spear, a pole with a tip with a sponge with vinegar on it, so that the instruments of the passion are there from the outset to tell you what kind of book this is. This is a serious book. This is not an account book or an entertaining book. This is a book to make you meditate on pain and suffering and transcendence. The provenance of the book is also something that was really attractive. Um, most manuscripts are only known if they're, the, pro if they're prop the property of very, very wealthy people, usually European aristocrats, and they're still in the castle collection or the, now the state library collection of the nation they were made for. But to find a manuscript where we know multiple people who were in touch with it and we know where it was made and where it spent some of its earliest years is a very rare thing for a manuscript. Most of them just show up on the market with no provenance information at all. So we know this was made in the Atelier of William Brelant in Bruges. We know that in 1527 to 1531, a man named William Berners, who lived in Angra de Castrum near Epping in England, um, owned it. Now, just for reference sake, if those of you who haven't studied European uh, geography, that's roughly the location of Bruges. And just across the channel, a little above, above London, is Angra, the, the location of William Berners' home. It's near Epping, just a, just a bit north of London. Um, at some point after that, it was in England in 1538, and there's, there's evidence in the manuscript, some particular destruction in the manuscript, that will tell us it was there in 1538. But then it passes to France, and the reasons for that have everything to do with the Reformation. In 1549, the Act of Uniformity and the publication of the Book of Common Prayer made books like this 
heretical in England. So it had to flee. Someone took it or sent it to France. There it was signed by someone named Cavillard, who styles himself Retor, which means either public speaker or perhaps a lawyer or perhaps even a prosecutor. And he, bless him, dates it 1720 on the page. Uh, a dated signature is the sort of thing bibliographers live for. So both William Berners has dated things that he has signed and Cavillard has dated things he has signed. And we know that the Cavillards, bless them, are heavily concentrated in Picardy here north of France on the border with Belgium and, and Flanders. Uh, it's also signed de Friancourt. Friancourt is a town. So by this time in the 18th century, it is no longer the property of a person. It's the property of a town. And this, again, is a place in Picardy. Then in the calendar, a later hand has signed it, Guillaume Alexandre d'Orléans. Uh, the d'Orléans live in Normandy here. So it has moved from Epping to Picardy to Normandy. And then we lose track of it. Sometime in the 19th century, it passes back to England. It's in the hands of two different booksellers, both of whom hold it for so long that they die with it in their collections, not willing to give it up. And then it's purchased by John Hawthorne, no less than the Wayne Fleet Professor of Metaphysics at Magdalen College, Oxford. Uh, he's now working at, at you know, University of Southern California. I don't actually blame him much, but um, that purchase um, he held on to for long enough to give it a beautiful... Um, custom-made book box that helped protect it even further. And then he sold it to Blackwell's Rare Books in Oxford in 2016. And that's when I got to see it. It showed up in their online catalog, and I got very, very afraid because of its condition. They were having trouble selling it, and the likelihood was that it would be bought by someone who would break it up and sell it leaf by leaf on eBay. You can get between $300 and $500 a leaf just for a page of Gothic text of that size. So there was no comparison between the, the price that Laura and I paid for it, for the donation, and the price that some, someone could have made by breaking that book up and distributing it hither and yon. Um, so we had to rush somewhat to make sure we got the purchase before Blackwell sold it to someone. Our donation was in just about a year ago, um, and Special Collections has had it ever since, and Katrina Jackson has, just as of today, gotten it on OCLC, so it's in WorldCat. It's officially Gouger's. Kristen? Bruges, where it was made, is a beautiful city. Um, it's a canal town. It's also, at the time in the, in the 1470s, a, a centerpiece of the Burgundian production of panel paintings and of manuscripts, beautifully illuminated manuscripts. Everyone who was anyone came from all over, to, all over Europe to work in Bruges, in part because of the Dukes of Burgundy and the people that they hired, uh, who all had money to spend on, on luxury goods. Uh, so if you weren't a Duke and buying a Ducal Book of Hours, you could be a Duke's employee and have the money to buy a smaller Book of Hours like this. Next slide. We actually know because of a map made in the 1520s the street where Vreeland lived. And it's a street that was inhabited by a number of other illuminators and panel painters. Gerard David has three houses here, side by side. Uh, one might ask, why three houses? Perhaps a large extended family, or perhaps he ran a workshop, an actual physical workshop in one of the houses and had his dwelling in one of the others. Uh, the house owned by William and Marie de Vreeland, and I mention Marie specifically because she is an illuminator herself and ran the shop after her husband died for 10 years, is here. 
So he's just down the street from Gerard David and almost the next door neighbor of the famous panel painter and previously illuminator Hans Memling. So this is a street of illuminators and panel painters and later printers, of course, in the next century. But unfortunately, Bruges falls into uh, warfare and the, the whole business of making fine art uh, decamps to Antwerp. And Antwerp becomes the seat of what later becomes known, if you've heard of the golden age of Dutch painting, that's where it all goes. But they learn their chops in Bruges, and they're taking uh, pigment-making techniques and painting techniques and attitudes toward the image, what the image can do, and they transport that to Antwerp and to the new world of these large-format paintings that you can see in museums. One question that we had, I won't bore you too much with this, um, is were any of these books of ours made by women? Lindley Herbert at the Walters is specifically interested in increasing the number of manuscripts that they have and can identify that were made either by or for women. Some of these she's going out and buying, but I think I persuaded her that the odds are good that she has in her 21-plus Vreeland manuscripts at least some that were made by women. Marie de Vreeland, you already know, is uh, his husband and ran the shop. The minute he died, she, be she became a full member of the, uh, the Illuminators Guild of St. John Evangelist. Um, you don't do that unless you're already ready to be a master yourself. And she, she may have been the person training the apprentices because so many of the apprentices were women. The first recorded apprentice is unnamed in the records, but she's paying uh, a specific lower fee that, that females were, were asked to pay in the 1460s. A second one named Matkin, perhaps Matilda, uh, also paid the three groat female illuminators filled fee. The third apprentice, the daughter of Ludovic Braille's, is apprenticed right up to the end of the 1460s. And there's probably a fourth apprentice. Uh, the records are a little unclear um, in, the, in the beginning of the 1470s. After a brief hiatus, Adrienne de Rate is the only known male apprentice in the shop, and she's followed by Betkin or Beatrice Skeppens, who's apprenticed in 1476-78, right in the middle of the period when the Berners Hours was made. And she becomes a full member of the Illuminators Guild, just as Marie did, and is there for 11 years. And both Skeppens and de Rate use William Vreeland's last name, either because they married into the family or because it was good business to be a Vreeland as an Illuminator. This is the castle it wasn't in. Um, <laughs> Nancy, Peter, Peter Kidd, a renowned manuscript specialist, um, made his very best guess based on uh, William Berner's inscriptions that um, the Angra ad Castrum might have been some attempt to render Angra's castle uh, as the place where the manuscript was held. It was, it's a 12th century castle, never conquered. It has a fabulous saint chapel there in the center that has... Um, had relics of the instruments of the uh, relics of the Passion itself, pieces of the whole of the of the Sacred Cross. It had an instruments of the Passion tapestry. I was getting really excited by this. And then after the Apocalypse manus uh, tapestry, which is one of the lar largest and best surviving medieval tapestries, um, was recovered after its dispersal during the Revolution. It was brought to the Angra's Castle for display because it already had really great facilities for displaying manuscripts. That was our that was our or Dumbo's feather for a while about where the manuscript had been. Unfortunately, it was only very near Epping. But that even has a more humble and an interest, but an interesting possibility. The oldest wooden church in the world is near Epping at a place called Anger ad Castrum. You can just barely make out the chipping Anger label here. There's London. 
So it's just a bit north of London. That center section is the Norman, the Norman construction. You have to abstract the Tudor dormers, which were added later, this brick chapel, which is Victorian, and this tower here, which is obviously modern. But this old rectangular structure, which you can see from the inside here, is made of uh, walls of, of logs. The outside are left around. The insides are really crudely flattened with an adze, which was used by carpenters and shipbuilders. It's basically an axe that, uh, that cuts horizontally, and it leaves great big gouges in the inside, which they never bothered to flatten out. Um, so this is 9th to 11th century wood. They know this by dendro dendrochrological analysis. So this is the first piece of Providence information we have. Uh, William Berners, as a good father and as a proud one, is recording the births of his children. And the very first one born, he names, of course, William Hay, he records twice. Once right up there with the saints. Again, this is for September, the calends of September. And there's the birth of his son. You can make, perhaps barely make out the 1527 in Arabic numerals. And then he repeats a really formal birth announcement of his son's birth at Angra ad Castrum. Um, in 10 September 1527, he was a happy man. Um, um, overjoyed, I would say. Um, the next, in two years late, several years later, he rec records the birth of his last son, Thomas, which you can barely make out here. Um, again, Peter Kidd is a much better uh, paleographer than I am. I'm really grateful to his, to his reading of this. Um, but Thomas is born in uh, Epping in 1531. When we still thought this, uh, this manuscript resided in a castle in France, we had no explanation for how suddenly William Berners is starting to have, um, uh, and his wife are having, having children in Epping across the channel. But it makes much more sense if they were always resident very near Angred Castle in Epping. Oh, one last, well, you'll see it later. That Notice the offset of the black on the opposite page, and the other KL of Callens was smudged. That is a characteristic that goes all the way through this manuscript. The, the golden initial that begins the calendar is being kissed at the beginning of the day when the prayers are being said for the souls of those children. In this case, literally the soul of the child. He's born and died and dies on the same day, 6th of October, 1528. So John was the second son of William Berners. The obit is just barely visible there. Um, this is a, another one of those days where you would, you would remember your child and the soul of your child and pray. And the last recorded child of the, uh, the next to last recorded child of the fourth, born in the month of June, is Eleonora. Again, born Apud Angres Ad Castrum. The interesting thing about this is trying to determine whether this is William Berners handwriting or whether this is the handwriting of the same scribe employed by William Berners. It wouldn't have been improbable for uh, a fairly well-to-do man to employ his own scribe to make such notes. But um, at the moment, I'm still romantically inclined to think that he's writing his own children's birth announcements, that it would be just such a powerful thing for him to want to do. Here's our Cavallard retour. Thank you, thank you, Cavallard, for dating at 1720. And again, you can see that this is a different text from that Gothic uh, 1470s text above. This is that nice, open, humanist hand that we're used to reading, making its letters the same way. This is de Friancourt, identifying it as being from the town in Picardy. And also, you can see what a decorated page looks like, if you're looking sideways there. So you've got a text being written in a sort of brownish-black ink, and then blue and red initials, some limbed with gold, and some beautiful decorative penwork being added. 
what we're going to realize is these happen in stages because this is being made by an organization of people, each of whom has responsibility for a different part of the manuscript. And this is our last, probably our last signature from the Norman New York Dorlans family. Um, this is the full signature, and this is the beginning of a signature that was wiped away. And that, again, it's, a, it's an open hand. It looks much more like a signature you might see on a check today. Um, this is 18, 18th century handwriting, not the handwriting of our Gothic scribe. The fancy part of this manuscript, the thing that uh, almost all of the buyers would have looked at immediately, are how many illuminated, initial, uh, illuminated miniatures are there. Um, there are nine surviving, three are very well preserved, um, six are very heavily damaged by worship. You were probably able to see the St. George outside, uh, and all of the others are uh, more or less damaged. Some of them really ferociously damaged, but damaged by love, damaged by kissing attention. If you've ever been overkissed by a granny. You know what it's like. And this is happening endlessly, generation after generation. There's a very nice study of this uh, practice of kissing by a student of Catherine Rudy's um, at St. Andrews. She was the one who pioneered the, um, the study of kissed manuscripts. Uh, the student is pointing out that in kissing a, a leather manuscript, you are kissing the skin that has been kissed by your ancestors. There's something profoundly emotionally um, affective about that so that the, 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 the prayer that you are praying is the same prayer they prayed and the object that you are kissing is an object they kissed. We are hypothesizing that the rest of these would have been in the manuscript that might have been removed. There are scenes, uh, some of the panel paintings that were painted in Antwerp in the 1500s will show people praying and they're tacked on the wall is what appears to be an illumination cut from a manuscript and it's sort of just up there on the wall. Again, what the way that the function of these things, as you'll see later, is to concentrate people's attention visually so that it changes the way they read the prayers. The 21 historiated initials, which are seven lines high, but that's really only about two and a half centimeters maximum, um, are in remarkably good shape. Um, we're still working on why that's true, why the illuminated miniatures, the full page paintings, are the ones that are kissed away, and why almost all of these are almost untouched. Lawrence, though, of all the saints, is almost kissed away. And it's just opposite him that there's that interesting uh, piece of evidence about the manuscript's presence in England in 1538. So this is the first actual page after the calendar, which tells you sort of when you are in time and where you are in the, litany, in, in the liturgy of the saints. Um, this is the beginning of a set of prayers, not in all manuscripts, but in a very large number of them that come from the Verlant workshop, and in many of them that are devoted to, uh, are prepared for sale with use of serum for English buyers. This is the 15 O's of St. Bridget of Sweden. And they're called the 15 O's because all 15 prayers begin with the exclamation, O. And you see with a nice, beautiful, um, gold-illuminated O. And this one, O Jesu Christi Eterna Dulce, has the characteristic smudge mark of the of the kiss not as bad as some of them but it also has this characteristic rinseau or foliate border with acanthus leaves and berries and little gold dots and you can see in addition to this gold there's gold in the margin and uh, it will show up especially if you see it on on the side um 
the little gold dots that are meant to sparkle in candlelight. That is technically what's meant by illumination, literally light brought to the page. After you've prayed all 15 of those prayers, and if you've prayed them every day, at least according to Bridget, you will have prayed one prayer for every one of the 5,457 blows that Jesus suffered in the Passion. And therefore, according to St. Bridget, not according to the current church, you will get a thousand years off purgatory. That kind of what, what uh, skeptics would call quid pro quo praying was characteristic of uh, 15th and 16th century uh, Christianity. But the church, especially under pressure from the, the Protestant reformers, um, has, has really argued strongly against it. So you could still find the 15 O's uh, available, but there's always a note from the church saying, of course, God is not compelled by your prayers. You're, you're merely petitioning. Um, and it's an interesting problem. For the, but for the people making those prayers, they don't seem to have had any doubt that they would have effect. That is, you're making a statement that's very like the modern performatives, as when a policeman uh, with, the, with the right jurisdiction says, you're under arrest, or when uh, a justice of the peace or, or a clergyman says, I now pronounce you man and wife. They're words that have power. They're words that make something happen. This is John Searle and William Austin. Um, that these are performative acts that for, the, for the, the worshiper make things happen. So this is the first of the suffrages, the prayers to the, tr this is a prayer to the Trinity, and you can see what a, a full spread would look like. Bridget's first of the 15 O's probably had a facing page miniature of Bridget receiving the prayers from Jesus. But this is, the, this is a complete one. This, although it has the matching border, this is what's called by the bibliographers a singleton. That is, it was painted separately on an inserted leaf. There's a little tiny stub that goes into the margin there, and the sewing goes through that. But it was painted separately. So we got a, a hint here about the probable order of, of, of construction. First, the actual text is written by one of the lowest level of the, of the workers. All you have to be able to do is make the characters of the Roman alphabet. And then there's some decoration, perhaps, of the initials. And then someone paints borders. The border painter seems to have been the same painter for all of the leaves, but we haven't absolutely confirmed that. That's one of Rebecca's tasks is to, through study of the paint pigments, determine whether the same person is painting. Now, the surest way of knowing is whether that brush dips into the same pot of paint every time it paints a blue or red. But then, finally, the master painter comes along and paints this interior. And one thing that you will find, if you, want, if you see a miniature and you want to know, is this likely a virulent uh, miniature um, I'll give you some clues. Almost all of them have tile floors. And the ones painted by his apprentices tend to have the tiles all the same size, no matter where they are in the image. Now, that violates a basic rule of perspective. They should be getting smaller as you go to the back. But the apprentices took longer to learn this. In tile floors painted by Vreeland, the perspective is very well maintained, and you can go backward into the painting. It, uh, it's that drawing-in practice that the Renaissance painters um, used so well. But this also preserves that pillared room that has windows open to the outside and usually a very balanced set of characters here, God, the angels, and Jesus, the Holy Spirit flying that way. It's the only sort of unsymmetrical part of the, of the composition. Verlant really liked symmetrical compositions. So look for your tile floors and look for relatively simple faces. He's not trying to engage people with the personalities of the figures he's drawing. They're being there. They're there to serve as an object of, of fascinated attention while the prayer is being uttered until you lose track of where you are. 
Also, you can see here the kissed initial and the lamp black from the black pigment is being smeared this way by repeated kissing. The suffrage to St. John Baptist has lost its, its facing page miniature. So you can see that all the basic stuff here is as it would have been, and it's just missing its singleton. Um, that thumb there belongs to Victoria Van Henning, who, bless her heart, uh, was studying in Oxford and, and agreed to go visit the manuscript, but she's a graduate of Goucher, class of 07? 06 or 07, and, and is, is still working at Oxford. And St. John Evangelist, the next saint suffrage that's going in, has also lost its miniature going this way. And you can actually see a little bit of the stub where it was cut out. Um, nowadays, we tend to think of this as vandalism. It might have been an act of extraordinary loving charity. That is, someone who really venerated St. John Evangelist and needed help might have been given this illumination to encourage them to pray and to serve as a focus for their prayers. So that the book is... It's constantly sort of in motion. It's in change. Ordinarily, if this had been made earlier in the, in the history of making books of ours, that miniature might have been replaced by a manuscript painter. But since it's made near the end of the period of books of ours manufacture, there are no more manuscript illuminators left to replace it. By the 1500s, they're all doing panel paintings if they're doing anything. So it, it, once it's lost its illuminations, it, they don't get replaced. Now, George, you've seen before if you were outside, but can you make out the scene? Can anybody identify any specific parts of it that are definitely George and the dragon? Just shout out. You can see a dragon, okay, sort of a scaly tail there, and dragon blood. We don't know whether it has what J.R.R. Tolkien would have called true draconitas because it's been sort of obliterated a bit, but not nearly as bad as the saint. And if you look very carefully here, the, the sort of most transparent parts of it roughly correspond to a pair of adult human lips. And that's one of the uncanny things about these. People are hitting the target, the same place, generation after generation. You can see George's horse. He's got a little bit of a raised hoof there, the spear going down into the dragon, in the back, a walled city, the woman George is saving, and not too much else. <laughs> that there... That's more. I think that's a smudge from the from the the black ink here. You see, that's that. Everyone's seeing conspiracies everywhere. Um, but again, this this was a heavily venerated saint. George is a plague saint. Um, he's 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 one that we call to and uh, to defend you from infectious diseases. And those of you who haven't had your flu shot, there's still time to get one. Okay. The St. Christopher suffrage is also intact, but again, seriously kissed here right around the saint and Jesus who he's carrying across the river. But you can see the flowing black robe, the, the gray robe, and the swirling light blue water, the castellated town in the background. Um, so large portions of this have survived. The kissing is not quite so severe, and also the initial has been kissed. And again, that Rinsu border, the, the acanthus leaf border, very regular. Again, I'm still suspecting it's the same artist painting all of those borders. Suffrage to St. Mary Magdalene is almost perfectly intact. Um, she has a really interesting history. As a, she's not a saint in, 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 many, in many of the um, uh, places where, where Christianity is followed, but she uh, acquires a kind of saint's legend uh, as one who protects pilgrims. And 
She's holding a pilgrim's frond here, but she's also holding the cup of ointment with which she anointed Jesus' feet. And again, that tile floor, but can you see a diminution in the size of the tiles going back this way? That was not there in the, um, uh, in, in the earlier paintings that had tile floors. So I'm suspecting it possibly this might be the work of either one of Verland's more advanced uh, miniaturists or perhaps Verland himself. He had a history of stepping in to touch up manuscripts, even to repaint some stuff in order to sort of keep up the brand, to keep the house style more or less uniform, which is one of the things that bedevils um, manuscript scholars when they try to tell a true Vreeland from a school of Vreeland or follower of Vreeland. Um, there's there's uh, perhaps six or seven different ways to describe this. We're hoping that the Burner's Hours and our comparison with the 21 manuscripts at the Walters and the eight at the Morgan Library will help us begin to sort of set up a kind of sliding scale of relentless. Barbara has suffered serious damage. This is the very end of the prayer, the suffrage to Barbara. But St. Barbara um, fought a battle with her father over the structure of the tower he was going to imprison her in, as you do with one's daughters. Um, he wanted one He wanted one window because he was a pagan, but she was a true believing Christian, so she wanted three, and so instructed the architects. When he returned, he was so incensed, he cut her head off, as you do if you're a pagan, and he was immediately struck by lightning and carried off by demons. So that's a powerful legend. It's, just, it's, got, a lot, it's got a lot of action, a lot of appeal, and uh, she, she is sacred to architects, miners, people who work with explosives of all sorts, and fire. Um, so she is, she is a, a very popular saint. And you can see what her, her illumination probably would look like from this very lent um, atelier miniature from Walter's W197. Again, they are so like one another from manuscript to manuscript that at least the layout would be the same. Although I think you can tell that the, the, fl the floral border here is somewhat more finely drawn than in the Burner's Hours. But it's the same basic rounded top window um, appearance. Margaret is my favorite, I think. Um, she is um, uh, heavily kissed away. You can barely make out what you should be seeing here. So I've included the Walters W197 Margaret. Um, she was being tempted by a demon and flashed the cross at it, said, be gone, and he left in, in terror, went to this boss, Satan appears in the form of a dragon and swallows her, thinking he's done the job, but he doesn't notice she's carrying the cross. And she bursts up through the demon's back and while he's still chewing on the remains of her blue gown, this is a fairly traditional way of representing her. It happens that fast before he can even swallow her. That image of her bursting from the constriction of the demon, from the, from the, from the dragon's bowels, makes her a patron saint of women in childbirth, especially difficult childbirth. And you can see a sort of um, a parallelism, an analogy of, of form there. And she has been heavily kissed. And I hope you can see the size of the opening of the mouth there. Lips there, lips there, wide open mouth, perhaps of generations of women in pain. Getting something from this. One of the possibilities that we're pursuing with the pigment ana analysis, if we can get far enough into this, is that some of the pigments contain very interesting chemicals, some of which might be biologically active. Uh, there's no yellow, uh, this is gold here, not, not yellow. If there were yellow, it might be orpiment, which is an arsenic salt. If you live in an area with a lot of arsenic in the water, you'll tend to give birth a, f a few weeks or months earlier. So it's possible if you're exposed to arsenic when you're in childbirth, it might induce a faster labor. 
I don't know. I've got to work. With, this is what we're talking to the people in biology and in chemistry as part of the research on this uh, on this project. Again, this is long-term stuff. Following Margaret are three additional sacred name prayers. There are names calling on Jesus, usually uh, multiple metaphors for how to name Jesus. And they're all being uh, sung in hopes of either apotropaic or thaumaturgic protection. Apotropaic is warding off of harm. Thaumaturgic is magic, asking for Jesus to intercede directly for you to make something good happen. But I hope you can see that something has gone wrong with, these, with this opening. It's missing something here and here. Our text writer did his job, but the guy doing, or person, perhaps foreman, doing the, the illuminated initials didn't show up for work on that page. But the text worker did everything she could. Right there and right there are little tiny guide letters to guide the person who was filling in the illuminated initials so that they would have the right letter beginning the, the word that follows, like there should be a D for Deus. So... Again, from our, the point of view of our book study students, this is like the book anatomized in process. We can see, uh, sort of looking over the shoulder of the workshop at the very first stage of production after the manuscript, after the parchment had been prepared and lined and ruled. This is the first thing that happened. The text was laid down. Oh, Now, you ask, what are the hours? There are actually three major sets of hours, the hours of the Virgin, the hours of the cross, and the hours of the Holy Spirit. And they seem to have come into historical existence at roughly the same time. Each one is a cycle of prayers. Each one commem commemorates events in, in sacred history. The Hours of the Virgin, as you can imagine, begin with the Annunciation to Mary and go through events sort of from Mary's point of view. And the Hours of the Holy Cross are from the point of view of Jesus' suffering. And the Hours of the, of the Holy Spirit sort of finesse that, combine them. Um, all three of these cycles can be present in any, bo any book of hours. The manufacturers of the Burner's Hours have conflated the Hours of the Virgin and the Hours of the Cross. But at the beginning of the Hours of the Virgin, almost always, there's an Annunciation scene, and it almost always looks like the one we see here from the Glasgow Manuscript, Ewing Three. Mary is here, hard at work reading. Mary is always literate when she's shown in the Annunciations. And here's Gabriel coming with this convenient scroll with Ave Maria written on it, so you know what he's saying. Um, and usually there is a dove and a, and a god figure somewhere in this vicinity, and the dove is flying down toward Mary's ear because it's through the, it's through the word that the incarnation happens. And that's, that's what typically takes place. This one is, again, it's missing a few pieces of a typical Annunciation scene, but the figures are oriented as they typically are. The Hours of the Cross is the betrayal. Um, this follows the, um, the night in the garden. Um, the troops are back here. This is Judas kissing Jesus. And paradoxically, this is the part that is kissed away. So it is the kiss of betrayal that is itself being kissed, as if the worshiper is participating agonizingly in the moment of betrayal, feeling what it was like to both be the betrayer and the betrayed. Uh, here in the foreground is a scene that uh, is apocryphal. It's probably Simon Peter, a, a different disciple, is the sword wielder in different versions of it. But he has just cut the ear off the servant of the high priest, who was such a bum that he led, used his lantern to lead the soldiers to the place where Jesus was so that Judas could betray him. And he has done that just, be just before Jesus could signal to him not to raise a sword in anger. So we have this sort of dramatic moment, frozen in time, in which violence has been committed 
but halted, and a greater violence is about to begin from this seeming act of love. Now we're into the historiated initials, and we'll move a little more, a little more quickly. They're smaller, but they're also very beautiful. And because they're smaller, it's imp important to realize just how tiny they are. Again, the whole book is only five inches tall, so these are about an inch tall. And everything in here is being painted probably with a brush that is made with the uh, tail hairs of either squirrel or fox. And sometimes with perhaps only one or two or three hairs so that you can get the fineness of detail. Individual feathers being sketched in. This particular dove form, I don't know whether you've ever seen a dove fly like this. It's sort of like a hawk coming in to attack a squirrel. Um, this is a characteristic of Vreeland, of Vreeland um, um, depictions of the Holy Spirit. You can see one here. I've been calling it somewhat irreverently, the feed-up dove. Um, and also this pattern of uh, rainbow-like um, colors. The only place I've ever seen this before in medieval drawing is in panel paintings of angels' wings, usually archangels. There are some like this in the Walters. Again, this is a, a, a suffrage to St. Michael, and you can see the way in which it is specifically the prayer you would pray when you need help. You're praying for an archangel to come help you now. And he shows up and kills demons for you. Um, it's his job at the end of time. Uh, it will be, again, it can be his job if you, if you call upon him correctly with the prayers. This is a set of miniatures to give you some idea of the variety here. So this is Peter and Paul. Um, notice they're, they're holding the book with their robes, not holding it with their hands. It's an interesting uh, medieval prayer practice, so that they were avoiding touching the, the, the sacred text, perhaps because it was sacred, but also because their hands could damage the manuscript. Um, Andrew is a little harder to make out here, Stephen, Nicholas. Notice what's happened to, to Lawrence here. He's the one who's kissed away. And opposite him, Thomas, Thomas of Becket. In 1538, Henry orders that all suffrages to Thomas be expunged from books of ours. He'll let them keep the books of ours for another 11 years, but he wants Thomas out of there. Does anybody know why Thomas was the saint he most disliked as the king of England? He's, he's the one who opposed Henry II about ordination of bishops. He took the pope's side. And Henry allegedly said in the presence of, of several of his knights, well, no one rid me of this troublesome priest, so they did. They went and killed him in Can at the, at, while he was saying Mass at Canterbury Cathedral. And he was instantly made a saint. And he became uh, perhaps the most famous of English saints. And it's, of course, he's, it's to his tomb that the Canterbury Pilgrims are going in Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, which is one of the reasons why Chaucer remains such a very interesting figure in Reformation England. You can't get Thomas out of that text, even in Reformation England. So no amount of scrubbing will remove that Thomas. And then this prayer for all saints, a crowd scene that's roughly less than an inch high, a whole series of saints and a patron praying for, for peace. This is Helen and the finding of the true cross. Again, thinking about the length of time the Christianity had to grow before the 1470s, Helen is the, is the mother of Constantine, uh, the Byzantine emperor. Um, who is the man who brings the Western Church in, uh, Western Empire into the Christian Church? Um, this is a, an act of political and, and symbolic significance, but the story of his mother going to the Holy Land and discovering the True Cross occurs centuries later as part of the reinterpretation of the past. 
this is the flagellation, um, part of the hours of the cross. And this is an instance where you can see a way in which an adaptive uh, miniature painter might take a previous Vreeland pattern where you can see the direction of the knees of Jesus and reverse them. But you've still got two tormentors. You've still got a pillar in the background and probably still the same background scene. But, and still a tile floor, of course. But the, the kissing has wiped out for this, the burner's hours, the remains of the scene. But one of the exciting possibilities, if we have an art uh, studio art major here, is that someone could repaint our miniatures on a separate page, of course, uh, based on the existing very late hours, and be fairly certain you're coming very close to the scene that was expunged again by generations of kissing. Um, these are the seven joys of the Virgin is, a, is another uh, sequence. There are 24 different prayer sequences in this manuscript, including the individual saint suffrages. And the seven joys are composed of a whole series of poems that are all repeated in the same order in the texts in which they occur. Um, this one has been significantly kissed. This one, not at all. This is the presentation of the Virgin of the Temple. It's a sort of a pun. She's about to become the Temple of the Trinity, and she is presented to the Temple, so the Temple is going into the Temple. Um, Christians liked sort of ironic, uh, this is sort of sacred humor. This is another instance of, of sort of sacred humor. You wouldn't think that the temptation of Eve and prayers to the cross would belong opposite each other, but they made perfect sense to the medieval audience. By the 13th century, the quest of the Holy Grail is telling the story that the cross was made from wood that came from, you guessed it, the tree of the, gar of, the, of the knowledge of good and evil from Eden, that that's why the, tree, the, the cross was made from that wood, and that, it, in effect, the two are mirrors of each other, one repairing the damage done by the other. Um, and again, people have remarked on this. This is a female face that is meant to be the same as Eve's. This occurs in a lot of uh, medieval and Renaissance painting. The Walters is a beautiful um, uh, painted terracotta um, sculpture on the, in, in the Great Hall, of uh, Eve with a really startling-looking Eve face on the snake. The seven joys of the Virgin, paradoxically per for us, include the wounds of the passion, the crown of thorns, the hand wounds, the side wound, and the feet wounds, each given a separate prayer. The people are being asked to meditate on pain and suffering experienced by another. Um, modern psychology, I think, will tell you that if you're feeling pain, if you think about others' pain, it takes you out of yourself. It helps you becoming too um, wrapped up in your, own, in your own difficulties, especially if you can do nothing about your own pain. It is a way, psychologically, of, in effect, tricking the mind to think through it. This is Mary's triumph, usually the end of the seven joys. It's... Uh, uh, sort of retrofitted on the book of Revelations in which John said he behold, beheld the woman clothed in the sun with a crescent moon under her feet and on her head a, a crown of 12 stars. So this is Mary's triumph when Jesus has won the battle against death. Um, it's a magnificent image and again it's about an inch high drawn with the finest possible touches. And our last judgment, this is, this is really heavily kissed. And you can see the attempts to redraw it by a later hand. Um, Abigail Quant confirmed that this is overdrawing, not underdrawing. There is a possibility in some uh, miniature drawings that the pattern will be laid out in, in some sort of uh, darker pattern and then painted over, and that 
if the pigment is eroded, the underdrawing can be exposed. But this is definitely laid down on top of the pigment. Again, this is something we're also hoping Rebecca can confirm. Um, yep, got it. And this is our last complete miniature, The Commendations of Souls. Um, this is the one I've been calling the Celestial Blanket Toss. This is the souls of the, of the, of the saved being carried to heaven from their graves. And notice that the kissing is the graves. It's directed at the graves. The last place their mortal remains would have rested. This follows the office of the dead, which is organic use of serum, and it is a place where two of the major ma uh, binding breaks are at the at the placebo and the dirige, the beginning of the service that's held in the in um, uh, in the cathedral for the prayers, and the dirige that begins at the graveside preparatory to burial, and the binding is broken almost through the cords at those places because the book since the 1700s have been opened and closed so many times at those places for funerals. A little bonus, someone in the 18th century gave us about eight leaves of music. It's uh, to the tune in Festus Duplicibus in double feasts as a, a really good saint gets one feast, a really great saint gets a double feast. Uh, you do even more elaborate ceremonies and notice that these are meant to be sung at different times of the day to the same lyric, but with different tunes. So this is the one sung at Vespers. And there's an, something I just noticed today. The beginning of the lyric begins to imitate the look of the Gothic hand. There's a D that looks like a Gothic D. But this is a, an 18th century D. This is the D we all recognize. So the beginning of this is imitation Gothic, and then this falls into standard 18th century handwriting. And one last secret. Abigail Quant spends an hour with this book. I had spent months. But at the end of her hour, she's got the big magnifier on. And she says, oh, what's this? And peels back the, the fly leaf of the, the paste down leaf of the binding. And we find a French 18th century manuscript written on both sides. And we still don't know what's on it. Why is it there? Who puts a manuscript inside the paste tone of a book of hours? I've got a million speculations. Um, we hope to be able to find out. And if Melissa's ready with a plan, we'll <laughs> figure out what to do, <laughs> how to, how to re basically remove. And that is the uh, um, marbled paper that gave Abigail Quant the dating information needed to date this as a 1700s uh, rebinding, not the earlier 1600s that Peter Kidd had thought. Marbled paper really starts to come in as a binding material in the 1700s. So that's our real surprise. Um, still waiting, only partially visible. Hold it there. I don't think I want to do the last slide yet. Questions? That's all I got for you right now. Yes. Are there mistakes? Almost certainly. There is no such thing as a perfect manuscript. Just like there's no such thing as a complete manuscript that's, that survived our time. But scribes always make mistakes. And it's one of the, the, just like printer's mistakes, it's one of the things that bibliographers live for because it's in the mistakes that you identify. Like scribes make typical mistakes. They even, as they age um, and their hands grow a little shakier, they develop tremors that can enable you to determine, ah, oh, that's the scribe with that, uh, that slight sideways tremor. We saw him in another manuscript. But all the, the, the patterns of mistakes in transcription are also characteristic of certain scribes. We haven't been close enough. We haven't been that deep in uh, with the text that we know for sure what we're dealing with. But I think from the handwriting, 
from the script from the from the, the hand that we have two perhaps three scribes working one is really florid loves the pen work the others the other two are much more discreet um more more, more conservative any other questions No, they didn't. They wanted the money. <clears throat> they were so grateful. People have been walking in off the street and saying, you got anything interesting? I'd say, we've got a manuscript book of ours. You want to see it? When Victoria came in, she thought she'd have to make an application. It was two, a day before Christmas. And they said, here it is. So that's why it's in her hand, it's just sitting there. They were really eager to sell it. But the, the way the manuscript market works, if it isn't pristine, it doesn't sell, except to the book breakers. And... So that's why this thing, the minute it got out of a, a really devoted book collector's hands, and I, I really owe John Hawthorne, we all owe John Hawthorne a lot for preserving it, um, that's, that, that was its most dangerous moment while it was sitting there in, in Oxford on open sale. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He wanted to buy a 13th century complete pandect Bible, which they're very scarce as hen's teeth so he, he he needed to raise some cash i don't know how well they pay professors of metaphysics but he he, he needed he needed the cash and the burners hours went to the block there and there good question my guess is it was stored open that is on a shelf um i think that the reason why that the the stamp is on the spine so that you can see that it's got the instruments of the passion if you're close enough to it is to identify it as a sacred text and also perhaps to identify it as something you should hide if you're in the wrong country and the, the searchers come. Um, but it clearly was not stored in the, in the, in the beautiful um, uh, box that, that um, Hawthorne had made for it. It is absolutely, for me, the, the absolutely perfect box for it. Um, careful, gentle pressure to keep the, keep the pages from curling up, but not too much. The, the question of how anyone understood it for certain is unclear. Um, I, if, if that is William Berner's handwriting and he can write Latin, then he can surely read it. So he at least could read what he was, what he was seeing on the page. Um, other worshipers may well have known their Latin sort of by rote memorization. And that would be a more, the more reason why they needed the visual focus for their prayers, because they didn't know what they were saying, except in general terms. Perhaps I know I'm praying to Michael, or I know I'm praying to Margaret, but I do not know exactly what I'm telling her in any one of the syllables I'm uttering. Um, fabulous question. If you figure out the answer, will you please tell me? Um, they're, they're, the, the size of the book seems to indicate very, very intense personal use, but it could easily be handed to another. And clearly, pages may have been given to other people, so that to some degree, it may have been a family resource. It certainly was, doubtless, handed down from generation to generation. Um, but, but, in what circumstance it went from a Berners to a Cavallard or to a, a, a Durian, I don't know. That's 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 the real puzzle. Again, there's we've only had it a year. It's been around for 540. <laughs> it's had five, basically 540 years to grow secrets.
Yeah, that's. I, I've got to be back in touch with Hawthorne again to find out more about the two British booksellers who had it in their collections and lived long enough to die with it. And they tend to be long-lived book booksellers. They're they're amazing. Like if if you want to live for a long time, get into the business. It's apparently very good for your for your your survival. So I would I would say maybe sixty, hundred, twenty years just in their collections. So that gets us back to the to the edge of the of the twentieth century, and then perhaps another few families before that in England. Can you speculate what the literacy rate would have been in the, in the early years of the book? Uh, zip. zip. Yeah, among among commoners, certain people had to know how to write. Merchants, first and foremost. Uh, interestingly, masons and carpenters. They had to at least be numerate so they could calculate, and that tended to go with basic basic literacy. But Latin literacy versus vernacular literacy is another thing. At least this is a Latin text. Latin literacy would be the first thing you would get, and vernacular literacy would come second. So if you would learn anything, you would learn your Our Father and your, and your Hail Mary, and then branch out from that. But it, it roughly... The ballpark figure I used to give uh, my students in survey courses for English literacy's takeoff is the late 1600s to 1700. That's when you start getting lots and lots of people able to write. You can see them starting to scribble in the margins, and they're dating their own autographs in the 1600s. So are there any modern technologies that are safe to use, yes. such as black light or something where you can see the outlines of lips? Oh, that. I'm not sure about bringing up the images. That is usually done by tuned light. <clears throat> um, but there's something called uh, Raman spectrophotometry that they can use to detect the pigments and X-ray fluorescence. Um, they've got the machines for that uh, for both of those at, at, at the Walters. Um, and it's it's also possible to, again to sort of tune the light that you're that you're shining on it, and to take multiple photographs and in effect build up um, a, a shadow image of what's missing. That's what they did with the Archimedes Palimpsest at the Walters. Yeah. A comment rather than a question. I just wanted to say how much I love the fact that there are so many connections across the you know across the curriculum. Yes. Yes. Yep. Amazing yeah. Just, just the function of the placebo effect, as a, as a, uh, if, even if you want to be totally agnostic or atheist about your dealing with this, and don't believe in prayer at all, its function as a potential um, analgesic and even potentially, in some cases, cure for certain kinds of symptoms, uh, is something that's been demonstrated in the biology department. Janet Shambaugh used to do a lot of work with, with placebo effect, um, and. Again, the possible bioactive nature of some of the pigments, that's maybe fairly far-fetched, but I'd love to be able to prove it. If anybody hands you a pot of orpiment, that's the yellow, don't touch it. Um, the Walters actually has a newly acquired uh, manuscript that Lindsay Herbert, Lindley Herbert bought that's um, made with uh, white lead to, to make the pages white. And she has to handle that with gloves and wash after she's used it. Uh, it's, it's potentially lethal. Beautiful manuscript, but what a price. Can I show you the last slide? This, you want to see a beautiful, deluxe manuscript. 
this is what they look like. Um, Margaret of Burgundy was the last of the daughters of the Dukes of Burgundy. She married Maximilian I, um, the Holy Roman Emperor, a Habsburg prince. Uh, this first book of hours on the left, um, the first leaf in the book of earlier leaf in the book of hours shows her praying. Notice how she's holding her book of hours and sort of protecting it. But here she is again, inset in that scene before the Virgin Mary and Jesus with her husband, Philip the Good, praying. This is what she is meant to see, that if she's out here with us and she's praying, seeing herself praying, seeing herself praying, that's the way the manuscript wants you to go into the text. The te it's teaching you how to read deeply, spiritually. The one on the right is truly amazing. Where is the worshiper? She's gone into the scene. There's her rosary. There's the casket it came from. There's her book of hours open to a crucifixion scene. And there are a bunch of people there in Dutch dress, including a woman who's looking back through, the, through that image at us. Like, what's keeping you? Come on, you can come too. That's the emergence of deep reading, the kind of reading that when you get lost in a book, that's where you want to be. Um, Again, it has something that has to be taught. It isn't, it isn't natural, not a natural accomplishment. Um, so if you're having trouble graduating from your iPhone back to a printed novel, don't worry, it's, it comes with the territory. You've got to retrain your brain again. But that's gorgeous work. That also shows you that image, that, that's the text page. In 1477, her father um, was killed in battle, at Battle of Nancy horribly mutilated. His frozen body was, had to be pried out of a river. He had to be identified by his doctor because he'd been so mutilated. Um, so the bibliographic theory is that they painted over all the texts in black and rewrote the text in gold as an act of mourning. And she herself, after she married Maximilian, only had about four good years. She went hunting uh, uh, flying falcons from horseback. Her horse stumbled, fell on her, and broke her back. She died. Um, so life, very brief, very precious. With that joyous note, <laughs> thank you. Oh, yeah, yeah. Let, let there be no injuries.